Well, if you want to open your Bibles right now to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, uh, we're going to be finishing up chapter 2 today. And when you get there, mark your place, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, and turn in your Bibles to John chapter 12. This is where we're going to begin today. I'm actually going to spend a fair amount of time here in John chapter 12. Last week, our focus was on end times prophecy. And we looked at the coming future events of the rapture of the church, of the rise of the Antichrist, of the return of Jesus Christ, ultimately. If you missed that message, I would encourage you to tune in and, uh, and watch that message. But these coming events, they, they haven't happened yet, but listen, they are an absolute certainty. Here's why. The Bible is the only book that predicts the future with 100% accuracy. God, speaking through the prophet Isaiah, declares this. He says, I am God, and there is none like me. Only I can tell you the future before it even happens. Everything that I plan will come to pass, for I do whatever I wish. And listen, those aren't empty words. Those are the word of God, and God backs up those words with overwhelming proof. There are over 300 prophecies that were given hundreds of years in advance regarding Jesus Christ's first coming. And all of those prophecies were fulfilled with 100% accuracy. That, by the way, is a mathematical impossibility that that happened by random chance, that those writers hundreds of years in advance just got it lucky and happened to, to you know, nail all the events by, by some, you know, fortuitous uh, happenstance of circumstance. No, that is a mathematical impossibility that could only happen if their words were inspired by God, and certainly they were. And so those, those 300 prophecies that were given regarding Jesus Christ's first coming, they were all fulfilled, and this weekend um, is the anniversary of the fulfillment of many of those prophecies regarding Jesus Christ's first coming. Um, today, um, this weekend, is Palm Sunday. 1988 years ago, on April 6th, 32 AD, Jesus made his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And as he made that triumphal entry, which we'll look at here in John chapter 12, he was welcomed by adoring crowds who were waving palm branches. And way back in Daniel chapter 9, several hundred years before this event, by the way, Daniel prophesied this event. He prophesied it to the day that Jesus would make his triumphal entry. Now, John records his triumphal entry this way. In John chapter 12, look at verses 12 and 13. It tells us that the next day, a great multitude that had come to the feast, speaking of the feast of Passover, when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, they took branches of palm trees and they went out to meet him and they cried out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. Now, the words that these crowd gathered there uh, on that first Palm Sunday, they were prophetically written in Psalm 118 hundreds of years before this event. The psalmist declared, this is the day that the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, why was the coming of the Messiah cause 
for such rejoicing? Well, the correct answer is because the world needs a Savior to save us from our sins. The Bible teaches that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The Bible says that the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God, the Bible teaches, is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. Uh, Romans 5 verses 6 through 8 tells us, For when we were still sinners without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we are still sinners, Christ died for us. That is the day that the psalmist was celebrating, the day that the psalmist was writing about, looking ahead to the coming of the Messiah. But that is not the reason that the people celebrated his coming on that first Palm Sunday here in John chapter 12. What then were they celebrating? Well, to answer that question, we back up a few days and we'll pick up the story in John chapter 12 and we'll just kind of read through the account. <coughs> John writes, Then, six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus was who had uh, been dead. You'll recall Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. Um, and it tells us whom he, Jesus, had raised from the dead. There they made him a supper, and Martha served, but Lazarus was one of those who sat at the table with him. And then Mary took a pound of very costly oil of spikenard. She anointed the feet of Jesus. She wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the fragrance of the oil. She had played, Mary had paid close attention to the things that Jesus had said, and she knew that what she was doing was, in fact, anointing his body for his burial. She knew what was coming. But, verse 4 tells us, one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, who would betray him, said, Why was this fragrant oil not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? This he said, not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief and he had the money box and he used to take what was put in it. We could do a whole message on that. But, verse 7, Jesus said, Let her alone. She has kept this for the day of my burial for the poor you have with you always but me you do not have always now verse 9 says a great many of the Jews knew that Jesus was there and they came not for Jesus's sake only but that they might also see Lazarus whom he had raised from the dead they they, they just wanted to see the, the the notoriety of I want to see the guy that was dead that was raised from the dead. But the chief priests plotted to put Lazarus to death also because on account of him, many of the Jews went away and believed in Jesus. You think? You see somebody that Jesus rose from the dead? That's going to make you a believer? Certainly many of the, the Jews did believe from that miracle um, and the chief priests, they weren't going to have it. And then, of course, we read the verses we started with. The next day, a great multitude that had come to the feast of Passover, when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, they took branches of palm trees and they went out to meet him and they cried out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. 
Now, there's three things to note about the crowd in these verses. First of all, they come shouting, Hosanna. That's very important. That, that word, Hosanna, it literally means save now. And it comes from Psalm 118, which is a messianic psalm. Uh, psalm 118 says, save now, I pray, O Lord. O Lord, I pray, send now prosperity. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you from the house of the Lord. Now, this gives us a clue of the crowd's motive for celebrating Jesus' arrival on that first Palm Sunday. You see, at this time, the Jews were under the rule and the occupation of Rome. And they had been under the rule and the occupation of Rome for 95 years. In 63 BC, Roman legions had come in under Pompey, and uh, they conquered Jerusalem, and they deposed the king. And so the Jews hated Rome, and they were looking for a Messiah to restore Israel. <coughs> they were looking for somebody who was going to restore the throne uh, of David and, to, and somebody who would enable them to restore their rule over the land. And so when they were shouting, save now, when Jesus came in to Jerusalem, what they were really saying was, save our nation now. They were saying, bring us back to prosperity now. Now, I have to be honest and tell you that I can totally identify with the sentiment right now. Uh, you can too, if you're honest. Because in a sense, we are all practically right now living under the occupation of the coronavirus, right? And like Israel, we want our nation back. Like Israel, we want prosperity back. And listen, that's fine, and we can pray for that just so long as we don't worship that. We can pray for that just so long as that's not the source of our hope. We can pray for that just so long as we are seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Jesus said, Do not worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air, for they neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? Which of you, Jesus asked, by worrying can add one cubit to his stature? And then he goes on to say this in verse 31 of Matthew chapter 6. He says, therefore do not worry saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For after all of these things the Gentiles seek, for your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But, Jesus says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. What are all these things? They're all the things that we worry about, right? Therefore, he says, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about its own things Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. But you see, for Israel, on that first Palm Sunday, they weren't doing that. Their focus and their hope was on earthly things, not on eternal things. Their focus and their hope and their whole concept of God was that he would be a welcome addition to their little empire. He would be, you know, a welcome addition to provide them all that they needed for their own kingdom, for their own program. And listen, at the end of the day, God doesn't care about your stuff. He cares about your state. 
That's the thing about the heart of God. He'll take care of your stuff. That's what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount that we just read from Matthew chapter 6. He'll take care of your stuff, but he's never going to do it at the expense of your state, your spiritual state. Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. Well, before we move out of John chapter uh, 12 and, and, and get to, uh, to 2 Thessalonians, I just want you to note a couple of other things about the heart of these people on the first Palm Sunday. They, they heralded Jesus as he came in with palm branches. Now, palm branches were a nationalistic symbol. This would be the equivalent of us waving an American flag. Um, and the idea, as they waved these, these palm branches, they're basically saying, you're the guy who's going to lead our rebellion against Rome. You're the guy who's going to help us establish our kingdom. And so it's all about our kingdom, not God's kingdom. That's their mindset. And why were they so ready for Jesus to be that kind of a leader? Why were they waving these palm branches, this nationalistic symbol and, and so on? Here's why. The third thing, you see it there in verse 9. They had seen Lazarus raised from the dead. Verse 9 says, uh, They came not for Jesus' sake only, but that they might also see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So, so here's the picture. Anybody with the power to do that, they reasoned, has the power to help us conquer Rome and help us get things back to normal. And so this was their whole mindset. Here's the deal. They saw Jesus as the key to their circumstances. They didn't see Jesus as the key to their souls. They completely missed the spiritual implication of Palm Sunday. That our greatest need is for a Savior who's going to atone for my sin. So here today on Palm Sunday, in the year 2020, we find ourselves in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, and you can turn there now. And this week, we shift our focus from promises to practices. You see, like the nation of Israel on that first Palm Sunday, we have the prophetic promises of what Christ will do in the future, but Unlike the nation of Israel on that first Palm Sunday, we have to recognize, church, we have to recognize what Christ wants to do in the present. You see, the prophecies about the future, they're exciting. And, and it is, uh, it's intriguing to read these prophecies that were given uh, hundreds and, and, and thousands of years ago now. And to see them play out in real time as you watch the evening news. It, 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 there, there is a, there's, a, there's an excitement to that. And, and the prophecies are very important that we understand them. But listen, ultimately, the purpose, hear my words, the purpose of prophecy is to inform how we live in the present in preparation for the future. That's the whole purpose of prophecy, how we live in the present in preparation for the future. My friend Josh Black, who pastors Calvary Canyon Hills, he, he posted on his social media this week uh, a, a statement that kind of sums up that, that whole idea perfectly. He said this, he said, Christians who know the word of God aren't panicked. We aren't fearful. We know that Bible prophecy is falling in line just as God said. We're making sure that our lamps are full and that our hearts are pointed upward as we await the trumpet blast of Jesus. But then he added this, 
we're also doing our best to love our neighbor and to be responsible citizens until that day comes. And with that in mind, I want to draw your attention to verses 9 through 12 where we left off uh, last week. Um, Paul says this. He says that the coming of the lawless one, speaking of the Antichrist, is according to the working of Satan with all power, signs, and lying wonders, and with all unrighteousness, or with all unrighteous deception among those who perish, these are the people that reject Jesus and embrace Antichrist, he says, because they did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. And for this reason, God will send them strong delusion that they should believe the lie, that they all may be condemned who did not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. What Paul says, and we can't miss that because it's, it's so important. He says that the defining practice of the people who are going to follow the Antichrist will be that they reject the truth. But Paul continues in verse 13 and he says, We are bound to give thanks to God always for you, brethren, Beloved of the Lord, because God from the beginning chose you for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth, to which he called you by our gospel for the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, just as the defining practice of the followers of Antichrist is going to be that they reject the truth, Paul says that the defining practice of the followers of Jesus is that rather than rejecting the truth, listen, Christians receive and they respond to the truth. This is what Paul is saying. Now, what we're going to do in our remaining time together is we're going to look at three ways to receive and respond to the truth. This is what Paul is going to get into. We're going to really dig in hard on the first way. Uh, we're going to um, lightly touch uh, on uh, the remaining two, but three ways to receive and respond to the truth. And the number one way is we need to believe the truth. Paul says there in verse 13 that God chose us through the work of the Holy Spirit by our belief in the truth. Now, when the Bible speaks of believing the truth, we have to define what that means. Because Paul here, what he's going to do is he's going to go on to list several defining beliefs that are all part of the truth of the gospel. And the first thing about believing the truth is that we need to believe that God loves us. We need to believe that God loves us. Paul says there in verse 13, we are bound to thank God for you. Here's the key word, beloved by the Lord. That word beloved, it's the word agape in the Greek, which, which is a, a, a word that's very familiar to, to many Christians. Agape means unconditional love. There are no strings attached. There, there is, there is, it's not a love that's dependent on anything that you do. It's an act of the will. It is a choice that God has made. And so believing the truth, first of all, means that we believe that God loves us. John 3.16 says, For God so loved 
the world, the world, and the, the word there is agape, unconditionally, not dependent on anything you do. God so loved the world, what did he do? He gave his only begotten son that whosoever would believe in him would not perish, but would have everlasting life. In the book of Romans, it tells us, Romans 5.8, that God demonstrates his own love for us, agape, unconditional love, not dependent on anything that you do to earn it, God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And so believing the truth means that we believe that God loves us. As well, it means that God chooses us. Paul says there in verse 13, from the beginning, God chose you for salvation. Now that word chose, it means literally to take and to choose for oneself. The idea is that God's choosing of, of those who, who will follow him, God's choosing of those who, who are Christians with a hope of eternal life, God's choosing is independent of you and me. It is by God, it is for God, and it is for his sovereign purposes. I saw a comedian not too long ago, and he was talking about his kids and how they were tag-teaming him, and they were tag-teaming his wife, and he was getting so frustrated with them. And at one point, in an exasperation, he says, hey, listen, your mother is the only one in this family who I chose, right? And um, he did a much better job with it than me. But listen, this idea of choosing, right? God has chosen us for salvation. This is what's known as the doctrine of of election. And this is perhaps one of the most misunderstood and debated doctrines in the Bible. And I taught extensively on this in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. And, uh, and so I'm not going to elaborate on it here. Um, I, I would encourage you to, to listen to that message in 1 Thessalonians 1 on the doctrine of election. But listen, just understand that the Bible contains two doctrines that are related to our salvation. Uh, the Bible teaches the doctrine of of election, which is the fact that God has chosen us. The Bible also teaches the doctrine of free will, which is that we make a choice to, to, to turn to God, to receive the Lord as our, as our Lord and Savior. Now listen, both are biblical. It is both and. It's not either or. It's both and. God chooses us and we choose God. Now how do we reconcile that? We don't. We don't. It reconciles in a higher unity. We can't understand it, but listen, God does understand it. I like what Greg Laurie said. He said, if God, was small of an, if God was small enough for us to figure out, then he wouldn't be big enough to, to handle all of our problems. And I, and, I, and I like that. Here's the question. The question is, do you believe that truth? Do you believe that truth? And, and how are you going to respond to the truth? That, that God loves you and that God has chosen you. Something else that believing truth includes is that we need to believe that God has set us apart unto himself. He set us apart to himself. Paul says there in verse 13, God chose you for salvation through sanctification. Now that word sanctification, it means to be set apart. And in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, we looked at practical 
sanctification um, in a believer's day-to-day life. The idea of practical sanctification is the ongoing work that God does in you after you have been saved. He who who has began a good work in you, the Bible says, will be faithful to complete it. And so there is that work of practical sanctification in a believer's life, which is just the daily process of being set apart to God moment by moment. But the the sanctifying work that Paul mentions here is what's known as positional sanctification. And understand that positional sanctification, it's not something that you do, it's something that God does. Uh, This is when the Holy Spirit leads an unbeliever to a saving faith in Jesus. Now, right now, we have, a, we have a wonderful object lesson of positional sanctification, being positionally set apart. Because right now, what's going on is that with this coronavirus uh, and with the, the mandate to shelter in place, we are positionally set apart in, in the safety of our homes from, from the virus that, that, that is out there, right? And so... <clears throat> positional sanctification from a spiritual uh, side of things is that God, through the work of the Holy Spirit, what's he do is, is he, he saves people, right? And the way that he saves people is that he sets us apart to himself as the Holy Spirit goes out and just as the coronavirus is, is this virus that, that is infecting and killing people, sin is this, this worldwide virus that is infecting and killing people. And so we believe that God has, part, part of belief is believing that God has set us apart from the, the infection of sin to himself, right, through that sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. Now, at the end of the message today, I'm going to give you an invitation to receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Maybe you don't know where you're going to spend eternity. Perhaps you don't know, you know, if, if, if you were to, to die today, you don't know whether you would go to heaven or where, whether you would go to hell. And listen, the thing is, is that you can know this. And the thing is, is that I trust, as I give that invitation, that the Holy Spirit is going to be at work, just as uh, the, the Bible promises. That God, he wants to set you apart to himself. And so what's he done? He, he, he is... He is um, he, the, the Holy Spirit is at work in the world right now, and as I'm leading you, as I'm teaching you, I'm trusting that the Holy Spirit is going to lead you to believe the truth that God loves you, that, he, that you are going to believe that God has chosen you, that you are going to believe that God, through the person and the work of the Holy Spirit, desires to set you apart to himself. And listen, something else that we need to believe that Paul touches on here, we need to believe that God calls us through the gospel. He calls us through the gospel. That's part of believing the truth. Paul says in verse 14, God called you by our gospel. Now here's the idea of that. Jesus said to his disciples in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, as he was getting ready to ascend into heaven, having died on the cross for our sins in our place and and, um, resurrecting to eternal life. 
He now desires that none should perish, but that all should have everlasting life. He, having paid the penalty for our sin, now what's he do? Well, in Acts chapter 1-8, he unleashes his disciples. He tells them, you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And that's been happening for 2,000 years. Romans 10, 14 and 15 says, How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who brings glad tidings of good things. Now, for those of you that are outside a saving faith in Jesus Christ, let me tell you how this applies to you. What this means is that people like me are entrusted with the saving message of the gospel. And when you hear these words, you need to understand these aren't my words. This isn't my idea. These are the words that come from God. This is exactly what the Bible has to say to, to the believers of Thessalonica in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13. Uh, Paul, speaking to them there by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he says, When you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. And so guys, this is the word of God and he's entrusted it to messengers who take the word of God and so you hear it from people like me and that's, that's, the, that's how the process works. Now, for those of you who are in a relationship with Jesus, say you have a saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, what this means for you is that uh, you have this duty and responsibility to share the gospel with other people. That we are called to be salt and light, and we are called to take this saving message of the gospel, which, which uh, is, not, is not a message that we created, it's just a message that we've been entrusted with, and so that is your role. So there are three ways to receive and respond to the truth, right? Number one, we've been looking at believing the truth, and believing the truth means that you believe that God loves you, it means that you believe that God has chosen you. It means that you believe that God has set you apart. And it means that you believe that God has called you. Um, the second thing, the second way that we respond to the truth that Paul touches on here is we guard the truth. We guard the truth. Notice what Paul says there in verse 15. He says, stand fast and hold the traditions that you were taught in the word. Right? That's the idea. See, not only is there the coming future danger when Antichrist comes on the scene and there are all those who follow him and what do they do? They reject the truth in order to follow the Antichrist. Not only is that a reality in our future, but listen, in a very real present tense, there is a danger right now. And the danger that we face right now is that the truth is under attack. And it's been under attack since the very beginning when Satan was tempting Adam and Eve in the garden. His, his, his whole line of attack was to question the word of God and to bring doubt. Did God really say that? That's what Satan was doing. 
And so the remedy that Paul says here, as you and I as believers, we're entrusted to guard the truth. How do we do that? Paul gives us the, the, the remedy or the, the prescription for guarding the truth. He says it's to stand fast and to hold the traditions. And then what Paul does there in verse 15 is he clarifies what he's talking about as he says that we are to stand fast and hold the traditions. It, what he says is whether it's by word or whether it's by epistle. You see, that's, that's how you stand fast. That's, that's how you, you hold the traditions. You do so by the word of God and through the epistles, the letters which the apostles wrote, which are also the inspired word of God. The idea, guys, is that we are to be anchored in the truth of God's word. When I was a kid, um, there was a, a boat in... Redondo Beach that it had uh, uh, it had some engine problems. They were in a storm, and they dropped their anchor, and uh, they tried for their their anchor to hold them against the storm that was blowing in, and uh, and it, it it couldn't do it, and so the anchor failed, and that boat ended up smashing against the rocks, and as it smashed into the rocks. Um, it became a permanent fixture there on the rocks. And, and my whole growing up, we would see this boat that was called the Dominator uh, getting dominated by, by the wind and the waves and so on. And so, listen, that's a picture of what can happen to us if we're not anchored in the Word of God. Um, this is why gathering together and going through the Word as we do here is so vitally important. As we just study the Bible, as we study it chapter by chapter and verse by verse, listen, the Word of God anchors us. It gives to us that, that, that ability to hold against the storms that are going to assail us. And so I said there's three ways to receive and respond to the truth. We believe the truth. Secondly, we guard the truth. And finally, Paul says, that we practice the truth. Notice again verses uh, 16 and 17. Paul says, Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and our God and Father, who has loved us and given us everlasting consolation and good hope by grace, comfort your hearts and establish you in every good word and work. Listen, as we close, I want to make one single observation, these two verses, and one single point of application for you and me as, as, we, uh, as we prepare to put feet on our faith. I want you to notice who it is who does this work. And I'll give you a clue. It's not you. It's not you. He says in verse 16 that it's our Lord Jesus Christ and it's God the Father. Who, by the way, Paul says, has loved us who gives us everlasting consolation and hope by his grace and who comforts us along the way. This is our promise, church. And even now, right now, in the midst of the storm that we are in, listen, we need to receive and respond to the truth that God has given to us. We need to believe the truth, we need to guard the truth, and we need to practice the truth.